Isaiah 38 and 39 now. We're coming to the end of this major section that began in chapter 1 and we've been working on since then. In effect, the, the section began at chapter 7. Uh, as we pointed out last week, we had a king in chapter 7 whom Isaiah is to meet at the, um, uh, the gate for the water, at the water gate, <laughs> uh, so the upper pool, and a, cha- and a king in chapter 35, 36, who Isaiah is to meet at the, at the uh, upper pool gate. The king in chapter 7 is offered the option to ask for a sign and now in chapter 38 and 39, the king that we meet here asks for a sign. What's interesting is what uh, God offered Ahaz in chapter 7, Ahaz, in political piety, <laughs> rejected. Um, I know those two words don't go together in your mind very well, but he, he gave a very... apparently pious response, but it was primarily motivated by politics. Now, Isaiah is going to ask for a sign. I'm sorry, Hezekiah is going to ask for a sign in chapter 39, and God will grant it. Uh, God doesn't even offer him a sign, but he will grant it. And so so it's fascinating to watch as this um, issue of who is really in control in the affairs of mankind. Uh, is unfolded in chapters 7 to 39. Uh, In chapters 36 and 37 that we looked at last week, Hezekiah was absolutely convinced that God was in control. (laughs) Chapter 39, it's not going to be absolutely clear what he thinks on this. He he may have some suspicions. Uh, As we've pointed out on the screen, this... uh, the one very few one of very few charts I've ever done in my life. I, I just don't think visually. It makes me a terrible communicator, but for some reason, it I, I don't know what happens. But um, the blue side of the chart is is pointing out that <laughs> that's not the Democrats. Okay. <laughs> Who asked me that? Uh, somebody asked me that this morning. Are these the Democrats and the Republicans? No. No, it's not. And by the way, Deborah, if you are in, involved in probation, you probably not need to get out of crime anyway. So uh, I just I just thought I'd share that with you. But the the blue side of the chart here is intended to show that chapters one to forty are really yeah one to thirty nine are really written with the Babylonian the Assyrian threat to Israel in the 8th century B.C. in view. Okay? That is, that is uh, solved. That Assyrian threat is solved in chapters 36 and 37. As we saw last week, um, God... Pardon? Yeah. God, uh, God <laughs> simply did away with the threat. Now in chapters 38 and 39, uh, you have Hezekiah's illness... And the outcome of that illness, namely the visit from Babylonian emissaries, this introduces the threat from Babylon that's going to dominate the thought from chapter 40 to 66 in one way or another. Um, 
So uh, we're in a kind of hinge passage here, and the two smaller boxes are intended to suggest that somehow there is a connection between them, but so there is a flow from 36 to 39, but it's a a shift as we make a turn toward Babylon. Um, In this passage, then, the Lord delivers Jerusalem's king Hezekiah from serious illness, and uh, in chapter 38, He's actually going to heal uh, Hezekiah. It's a, it's a difficult passage. The Hebrew is difficult. I worked through a, 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 a significant portion of this yesterday. And there are places where... Um, I know this won't make a lot of sense if you're not familiar with other languages, but there are places where you're not really sure what's going on in the text. So I'm going to go on with the NASB translation it's, an, it's a perfectly adequate translation. What's interesting is, there, even though there are places in the text where we're not sure what's going on, we know what's going on in the broader text, so we kind of fill in the blanks. Uh, so it, it sounds like it ought not to be that way, but it really is. Um, I, had, I don't know how long I've read this. I've been reading commentaries since about 1971, <laughs> one way or another, and... They would say, well, this isn't real clear, but we get the overall picture. How do you get the overall picture? Well, now I know. All right? It really does work. So here we're headed into this. So chapter 38, verses 1 to 3, Hezekiah prays for deliverance from a fatal disease. In those days, in what days? (laughs) Um we'll find out that his life is extended 15 years. Yes? The chronology of Hezekiah's uh, reign is not absolutely clear. There, there's a disparity in figuring the beginning point of the reign of about eight or nine years. Okay? But um, if, this, if he gets 15 more years, the event in chapters 36 and 37 occurred in 701 B.C. All right, are you with me here? That means that this event in 38 and 39 happened before the event in 36 and 37. So chronologically, this is the prior event. Uh, so the text is arranged thematically uh, in the Assyrian threat, begin the Babylonian threat. But, but uh, this event is earlier than the event in chapters 36 and 37 by quite a substantial margin because uh, uh, 701 B.C. would only be five to seven, eight years from Abraham's, uh, from Abraham? Hezekiah's death, okay? Uh, put mind in gear before engaging mouth. So, uh, chapter 38. Uh, Um, In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Hezekiah, you repeat things in Hebrew in order to underscore them. You know, if you die, you're not going to (laughs) live. It's kind of obvious. But in Hebrew, you repeat things in order to underscore how, how certain this is or how how important this is. Verse 2, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. King Ahab did that. 
but he did it to, to moan and groan. Hezekiah turns his... Do you remember Ahab doing this with Naboth in his vineyard? When he couldn't get it, he went to this, his room and lay down on his bed and turned his face to the wall and, and, uh, and cried out. Yeah, threw a little tantrum. Um, Hezekiah turns his face to the wall to pray. Turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David. Why does he call him the God of your father David? Whenever you see the God of, pay attention to that. It's, it's really important. When you talk about the God of Israel, or you got, talk about the God of uh, Abraham. What God, what God said and did for Abraham is being called into account here in this passage. In this case, it's David. We're talking about the Davidic covenant. Are you with me here? So, um, uh, he's, he's calling on, uh, on the Lord is assuring Hezekiah of the Davidic covenant and what it means. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you um, from this city and from the land of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This shall be a sign from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow of the stairway, uh, which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz, to go back ten... Isn't it interesting, King Ahaz? <laughs> uh, to go back ten steps. So the sun's shadow went back ten steps on the stairway on which he, it had gone down. Um, so here, verses 4 to 8, the Lord uh, promises healing and brings healing to him. question I have is, gets 15 more years. And I've heard sermons, have you? That Hezekiah was the man who lived too long? Um... Manasseh was born, I'm sorry, Manasseh is his uh, successor, and he came to the throne when he was 12, all right, reigned 15-5 years in, in Jerusalem. Um, does that mean that Manasseh was born in that 15-year period? And the answer is, I have no idea. And I want you to notice, neither this passage nor the parallel passage in 2 Kings even makes that connection. I don't know quite what to do about it. The chronology of Israel is difficult for a variety of reasons. Um, Kent, would you say an amen to that? <laughs> uh, one of the reasons is that they numbered years differently, slightly differently than we do. But additionally, and, and key here is um, in, in, in a monarchy when monarchy was widespread. It, would, it was a common practice for a, an aging king. By the way, Isaiah is only maybe 35 years old when this event happens. Okay? So, so he will say a little bit later, you cut me off in the middle of my, of my days. And, and 35? Well, sure. <laughs> uh, 
so so um, the um, it was the practice of an aging king, especially if he had um, enemies either within his own kingdom or around his kingdom, to associate to to elevate a son, his heir, to the throne while he's still living. It's called a co-regency. And so it might be that Hezekiah, as a result of this threat, took Manasseh and made him the co-regent now that he wasn't necessarily born in the 15 years. I, I don't think the sermon at Hezekiah is the man who lived too long is right. The, the text never says that. Are you with me here? So I don't want to impose on the text more than the text actually says. I have this principle. I've mentioned it to you. Um, I'm mentioning it, mentioning it a lot at school these days, and I probably have said it to you in recent weeks. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I, I, I have put these things in, in, in figurative form concerning myself and Apollos so that in us you may learn the truth of the statement, nothing beyond what is written. So if it's not in the text, I don't want to say it. I was talking to a friend who's in a liturgical group last night, and he said, but isn't the Lord's Supper something special? Don't we have to say that uh, something about the real presence or something of Jesus in the in the bread and the wine? I said, where does the Bible say that? And he has told me, we, we've known each other, gosh, how long? 47 years, 40, 46. Um, long time. Well, yeah, it's while I was in seminary. Um, no, it's worse. He's, he's Anglican, so, but but uh, uh, he. Uh, I said he has told me the best thing I ever did for him was tell him if the Bible doesn't say it, I can't say it, and that's been a key part of my soul ever since those early days. So my point is then, why should I preach a sermon that Hezekiah lived too long? when there are different explanations for the 12-year-old son. Do you follow this? This way the son gets on-the-job training. Yes? The organs of government begin to, be, begin to treat him differently because of his status. And when the father dies, then the son steps in and is in, in great shape to press on. Does this make sense to you? So uh, I'm kind of moving out some, uh, some uh, baggage that doesn't need to be there so that we can go on. Um, so maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Let's go on with it then. Jim, e Jim, yeah? Verse 6 then is, is, is what tells us for sure that the deliverance referred to there was the, the chapter, the previous chapter. Yeah. Well, it is, yeah, verse 6 says it is future. Uh, so it's not something past. Uh, it is, it is, it is. But it's pri this event is prior to that event. Yeah, yeah, all right. I, th I think so pretty much, yeah, yeah. Um, verse 9 then follows with a lengthy prayer. 
And this is part of the struggle of chapter 38. It doesn't, it doesn't read well for us Westerners. It may be that if I were Oriental and had an Oriental way of analyzing discourse, I might be able to see better how this is all working out. Look, look at the last two verses of this chapter, verse 21 and 22. Now Isaiah said, let them take a, a, a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Well, I thought God already healed him. And then verse 22, then Hezekiah had said, my, my text had said, or it's possible in Hebrew, uh, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? You got a sign. So there's just something going on here that we don't altogether understand. Do you follow this? I don't know what it is. And uh, the, the best commentaries I know don't know what's going on either. So we'll just, we'll just say, here it is, folks, and we'll do what we can with it. And when you get home to be with the Lord, you can ask him about chapter 38. Don't send me a message. It'll scare me. Uh, but but uh, in any case, um, even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that had happened in the land, God left him alone only to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. Notice here, this event is so significant that it became a pretext for the visit of the Babylonian emissaries that are in chapter 39. So here's his prayer, verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, uh, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. Here we follow a, a psalm. Okay, what we have follows is a psalm. And notice that it has a heading. It's very similar to some headings in the book of Psalms. But you were told all the headings were added much, much, much later. There's no evidence of that. <laughs> in fact, all the evidence from the ancient Near East and all the evidence from the manuscripts of the book of Psalms says that the Psalms have headings. All Psalms outside the Bible have headings. All the Psalms outside the book of Psalms have headings. So only in the book of Psalms they're added way late because ancient people are stupid and they don't know how to put headings on Psalms. Are you with me here? So I have a heading. And in the Psalm, verses 9 to 20, Hezekiah... Uh, praise about his recovery. Why is he doing that since he already has a promise from God? I don't know. Why do you keep asking me these questions? Please stop this. I, you, just, you, you, you just want to expose my in ignorance. I do enough of that by myself. Stop doing this. <laughs> so verse 9, verse 10 rather, I said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord, in the land of the living. By, by the way, notice what does life mean for Isaiah, for Hezekiah, rather? Look, look at verse 11. What does life mean for Hezekiah? Seeing the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Because no, no man has ever seen God. So what does that mean? He's going to the temple. Look at Psalm 66. Hold your finger here and turn to Psalm 66. Um, translations handle it slightly differently. Um, 
So I'll have to see how the NASV handles it. Psalm 66. Uh, well, that's a wonderful psalm. Sixty-three, sixty-three, Psalm sixty-three. O God, you are my God; I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you; my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Well, what did he see? Well, he saw the sanctuary. All right. Well, I don't know. There, there is a tradition that the ancient tam- temple actually had a glow to it when the glory of God was was especially present. I don't know. That that's tradition. It's not scripture. Um, but but what did he see? Well, he saw the altar. What does the altar tell you? There is wrath against sin, but there's also atonement for sin. Are you with me here? You see the mighty building and the glorious the glorious. Um, Walls around it. Am I making sense to you? You, you yes, ma'am. Well, I'm just. I don't know if you told us. Yeah. Somebody said it's. He's finding. He's realizing what you do and who you are. Yeah, yeah. So he's seeing the character of God in the in the building where God reveals Himself. He's seeing the work of God in the work of the priests and so forth. Does this make sense to you? So, so for Isaiah, writer, character, Hezekiah, for Hezekiah, life is to be involved in the service of God at the temple. And he goes on. Um, I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world like a shepherd's tent. My dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the uh, loom. It's, it's like a woman who's finished whatever she's weaving and she's snipping off, the, off the, the cords that hold it to the loom. From day into night, you make an end of me. I, I composed my soul until morning like a lion he, so he breaks, and that verse 13, I composed my soul. Another way of reading this could yield, I, I cried out. I, I, I put in my notes, bellowed. I bellowed until morning like a lion. So he breaks my bones. God is like a lion to him, breaking my bones? From day until night, you make an end of me like a swallow. Like a crane, so I twitter. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. In effect, what I think he's doing is he's going back and giving us the prayer that he was praying when he turned his head to the wall. Are you with me here? I, but, but the outcome is glorious for him. So he goes on. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live. And in these, in all these is the life of my spirit. In all these what? Well, all the things like gathering at the temple and, and 
singing the praises of God and seeing the sacrifices, experiencing the sacrifice and the pronouncement from the priest that you're forgiven. Um, you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, who is praying at the, temp- at the tabernacle, and Eli, whose reputation is not very good. Let me, let me um, rehabilitate Eli's reputation just briefly. He failed utterly with his sons. But he raised Samuel. Okay? He's probably a godly man who just... You, you know this. You have some parts of your life where um, there's some strength spiritually. And there are other parts of your life you think, eh, okay, what's ever going to happen? Are you with me here? And Eli's the same way. But um, so Hannah is praying at the tabernacle and Eli sees her lips moving, but hears no sound. So he assumes she's drunk. And uh, he rebukes her for coming drunken to the temple. And she said, I'm not drunk. I'm praying in the bitterness of my soul. Remember that up to this point, she would not eat or drink at the feasts because she didn't have anything to celebrate. She had no child. Are you with me? Then uh, Eli says to her, but, but she doesn't tell him what her prayer was about, at least not in our text. Eli answers, and the NASV reads something like, um, well, I sure hope the Lord will grant your prayer. It doesn't say that, you know. <laughs> May the Lord grant your request, which you have made of him. But that's the way I'd say it as a southerner. <laughs> Sure hope God will answer your prayer. Uh, and she goes away happy? Eli with the sons and their reputation has told her, Gee, I hope God will bless you. That she goes away happy and she starts celebrating? Now, Hebrew will read this way. It, it, it's a legitimate reading and it is a probably the most common way of reading this verb form. Uh, go, the Lord will grant your request. Now, how can he say that? Because he's a priest. He speaks the word of God. Does this make sense? Yes or no? Yeah. So having spoken the word of God, she believes the promise of God and goes and starts rejoicing. And sure enough, within just months, she has the baby. So here, why? what are these things that is the life of my spirit. These are the things by which people live. Well, it's, it's, it's the temple, and it's the ministry of God, and it's the, the character of God, and the work of God in the world. These are the things by which men live. Oh, restore me to health and let me live. Lo, verse 17 says, Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Cast all my sins behind your back? Hope he doesn't turn around. God ain't got no back. So what does that mean? It's an anthropomorphism, which means he doesn't see him anymore. God's that he's uh, not that 
Yeah, that's what he's been saying. But now he's come to a different, he's, he's turned the corner, as it were, in verse uh, 17. Um, uh, so it is you who has kept my, my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. <laughs> there are three views of this verse, and I'm not going to go through them. I, I'm going to give you the one I hold. Uh, the commentary that I was looking at said they're all they're all weak, and so if all of them are weak, I'll give you one of the weak ones. Okay, how many times have you been at a graveside and heard praise coming from the grave? You might have heard singing of hymns around the grave, but you never heard hymns, never heard praise coming from the grave itself, unless it's a really sick joke. Yes? Somebody put a, 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 have a microphone and a, pardon? Ay, 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 somebody, that, that guy needs to be flogged. Uh, uh, Sheol cannot thank you. What, thank? What, what does this mean? In Hebrew, it means to, to give a declaration of what, God, publicly, of what God has done in deliverance. Death can't do that. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. Um, it is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. You see, Richard, he's, he's turned the corner. They're probably in verse 17. Uh, so we will play my songs on straight. So he's going to write songs about this. And I, I just remind you that in the latter chapters of uh, Proverbs, it was the men of, of Hezekiah who had gathered some of Solomon's Proverbs to be put into the book. Do you recall this? Uh, kings also foster the worship at the temple. And so if he has the skills to do this, he's going to write his own songs now. Um, it is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me, so we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. So for him, brothers and sisters... Life is not being able to have a good meal. It's not having a really wonderful trip someplace. It's being able to engage in the communal worship of God. Are you with me here? Go to the temple, to, to the temple and, and behold the glory of God to sing about it and to to uh, uh, see God's work in his life. Yeah, Fred? Yeah. Yeah. There, there is more to it than that. He, uh, that's why I took, it's called, my, my approach is called a phenomenological approach. You, you don't see dead people praising just doesn't happen right so um, that is the kind of thing that I'm approaching it here with we typically say that the the Old Testament saints don't have very much of a view of the old of, of the afterlife I think they they have much more than we think they did um, for any of you who is interested on this matter this is a tall a tall order but Bruce Waltke, W-A-L-T-K-E, wrote a two-volume commentary on Proverbs. 
in the introduction in the first volume, he has a defense of the fact that the righteous that that Proverbs teaches hope for the righteous after death, and that it is it not just some hope. Who was it was talking about hope today? This morning was it you? I don't remember back that far. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I've slept twice since then, so. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> um, it's it's not just um, that they maybe something good will happen. Proverbs promises it. Uh, one of the prom- one of the promises to the righteous in Proverbs is that they will have a long life, full of um, all the blessings God intends. But Proverbs one has the wicked lying wait for the righteous to murder them. So in Proverbs 1, if there is no view of the afterlife, or if there is only a shadowy view of the afterlife, in Proverbs 1, the book deconstructs its own promises. Or, the, see, see, both the righteous and the wicked die in Proverbs. And the righteous live long lives Sometimes. And the wicked live short lives? Sometimes. So what does Proverbs, what is Proverbs talking about? Unless it's talking about life that transcends death, for which death is not anything more than a change. Are you with me here? Yes. Okay, <clears throat> two things. Job, which goes much further back, yes. he said, yet in my flesh will I see God. Yeah. And my Redeemer will stand on the Possibly. Earth. The <clears throat> translation there is difficult, and if I may put that off to some other discussion. Well, all I was yeah. going to ask was, yeah. is Hezekiah in what we're reading here? You remember when you told us that you think many of the Psalms apply to the kings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and mo- that's how most. Makes sense. Yeah. So... With what he's looking at, mm-hmm. isn't he looking at it from the standpoint of the king? Like yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm reading in Ezekiel just now. And Ezekiel has promised Israel that he will bring one king back for them. And my servant David will rule over you forever. But D-A-V-I-D spells Jesus. Amen. In the way that John the Baptist was Elijah? No, I don't think so. I think... Wait a minute, y'all. Let me ask you a question. It's real important. I I need to get an answer on this. Y'all do believe in the resurrection, don't you? If you believe in the resurrection, is David going to be resurrected from the dead? Do you expect to have a role in the government under Jesus? Then what... You think David's simply out... Or that David's going to have a role in the rule in the rule of Jesus too. Yeah. So my point is, D A V I D doesn't spell Jesus. D A V I D spells David. Okay. Uh, I told you the joke years ago. The joke is, little kids in Sunday school, teachers teaching them says, now ch- children, what's what's gray and furry and has a bushy tail gathers nuts for the winter. And children all drop their heads. If you don't make eye contact with the teacher, you don't have to answer the question. Come, come on, children. What, what's gray and has bushy tail, gathers nuts for the winter? 
Finally, one kid eased a hand up. Oh, good. What is it? The kid says, well, the answer's probably Jesus, but it sounds like a gray squirrel. (laughs) And... In a social setting, when a question comes, the social setting determines the range of answers that are possible. And so in a Sunday school class, when you're talking about anything future, anything, any question, the answer, the answer to any question has to be Jesus. But, uh, and Jesus is the cause for all our answers, but he's not the answer to every question. David's going to be raised from the dead too, and surely... A man who is the measure of all subsequent kings in the history of Judah must have a role in the in the rule. Does this make sense to you? So, chapter thirty-nine. You have a visit to to uh, Hezekiah from the uh, emissaries to Babylon. Come on. Zooks. Ah, chapter 39. He gets visited by the emissaries from Babylon. If Hezekiah, well, that's only giving the argument about date that I gave earlier. Um, Verses 1 and 2. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of uh, Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had, had recovered. Babylon was not a great power, but it was a it was a great city. It's kind of like Rome is today, uh, storied, historic city, cultural, significant culturally significant place. Yes, that's Babylon in the first in in the days of Hezekiah, and he's getting the emissaries from the king of Babylon. Why are they there? One theory on this is they're hoping that he will join them in an alliance against Assyria. But this is something like a thousand miles away in a, in a world in which 20 miles is a day's travel. Okay. So a thousand miles, it's too far. They're not trying to do that. What they're trying to do, I think, is butter him up so he'll, he'll rebel and, and uh, draw the, the Assyrians' attention away from them because they've just been defeated by the Assyrians. Are you with me here? So they're just they're just there to butter him up and try to get him to uh, get in trouble with the Assyrians, so they won't be. In effect, Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all the treasure, the silver and gold and the spices and the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was in his treasuries. If he had stopped there, it might have been okay. Still not good. There was nothing in the house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then uh, Isaiah the prophet came. So, so um, verses 3 and 4, Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men see and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. I'm, I'm big stuff now. <sighs> Babylonians want me as an ally. He said, what did they see in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Verse 5, 
I need to comment on the prophet here. This is this is very important. You need to understand more about the prophets. One aspect of prophetic work is that a prophet is not simply a messenger or a, or a speaker of the word. He is a covenant enforcement official. And he is... Um, um, he outranks the king in the in the kingdom of God. He is sent from the court of the great king. Jeremiah twenty three has this kind of information in it. In fact, I think that's on the next screen here. Who has stood in, the, in, in, in Jeremiah is responding to false prophets in his day, and he says, "But who has stood in the council of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened?" Um, so what does a prophet do? Stands in the court of the Lord and receives messages from the Lord. And his task is to go to whomever the Lord sends him. In this case, the Lord has sent him to the king of uh, King Hezekiah. In that respect, then, he is speaking in the person of the Lord God. Are you with me here? He's just the mouth speaking for the Lord. What did they see? And so where we are in this is God is calling to an account uh, of what he has done. So verse um, 5. Then Hezekiah, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your sons who will issue from you when you uh, whom you will beget will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the great of uh, the king of Babylon then Hezekiah said to Isaiah the word of the lord is good that's the point good in what sense well look, look at the rest of the verse the lord of the Word of the Lord is good, for there will be peace and truth in my days. I don't care what happens to my kids. What's going on with Hezekiah here? Is this the Hezekiah that we knew in chapters 36 and 37? And the answer is none of this is to deny the other biblical statements that Hezekiah was a generally good and godly king. But it is to point out that he was, in fact, not infallible. One of the themes that Hezekiah, that Isaiah, I think, is pursuing right through this whole section, 7 to 30 uh, to 39, is there is an agent who's coming to bring deliverance for Israel. Maybe it's Hezekiah. And chapter 38 and 39 are where they are in part to set up the Babylonian threat in chapters 40 to 66, but in part also to put the lie to the fact to the idea that Hezekiah is that deliverer. Hezekiah is no deliverer. Are you with me here? Somebody else. And we're going to ask other questions. Who else? Who is the deliverer? Is it Israel? Is it Cyrus? Glenn, if I may put it off, and in, in, uh, I need to finish. So he goes on, uh, Oswald goes on, he was not the Messiah, and like the nation he represented, he needed to discover that trust is a way of life, not a magic talisman to be used only in crises. So he had the crisis of the Assyrians. He had the crisis of his illness. But now when he is confronted with adulation, 
it doesn't do so well. You can be re- really maturing in certain aspects of your life. I, I've noticed this in my own life. You can be maturing in aspects of your life and really, really immature in others. Mm, pride gets in the way. Well, pride and all kinds of things. I, I just, well, I think I got this, Lord. I can take care of this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For him, sure. Pride got in the way. Uh, so, verses uh, uh, 39 here. The message of Isaiah does not reach its conclusion at the end of 39. Thank the Lord. Too many questions remain unanswered. To be sure, the, uh, that was, uh, that, those exclamation points were something I didn't intend to be on the screen. To be sure, the question, whom shall we trust? has been answered in an irrefutable way. The message of Isaiah does not read... I'm sorry. Um, All of this raises, again, the larger questions posed at the beginning of the book. How can a sinful, congenitally distrustful people, nay, race, become the servants of God? If trust in God is the basis for servanthood, What will motivate us to trust him? Beyond this, what of God's holy character and and human sinfulness? If if we are a congenitally sinful people, how are we ever going to get there? How are we ever going to get to a point where we can trust God? Hezekiah wasn't the way. Um, But then it gets worse. How can God do what Hezekiah said? You've, you've thrown all my sins behind your back. How could he do that? Now you're thinking, gray squirrel, gray squirrel. Jesus. But you know the end of the story. These people didn't. Are you with me? One of the things I have to do in reading and teaching these books is to get you to see them from the point of view of the readers of these books. And from their point of view, this has to be a conundrum. What of God's holy character? Can he simply, simply throw out sin? Um, how shall these things be revealed, reconciled? Are they ultimately irre- irreconcilable? Must the conflict be ignored? Or is there some resolution to the problem? And what we're going to look at in the coming chapters, is going to start on the way to the answer. When all is said and done, while chapters 7 to 39 provide the groundwork for the solution to the problem raised in chapters 1 to 5, the problem still remains. How can sinful, rebellious Israel become wholly submissive Israel? Trust God? Yes. But how? Hezekiah trusts God in crises, but not in safety. Chapters 40 to 66 exist to provide the answer to that question. So we are coming now to the last major section of the book, what I'm going to be dealing with under the heading, The Three Books of Comfort. Uh, And here, as you know, we have those critical passages the songs of the servant and um, uh, 42, 49, 50, and 53. Um, it's critical passages which are going to point us in the right direction.
But even in this section, we're still puzzling. Who is the agent? Who could it be? Who can, how can it be that one dies and yet, and, and, and dies for sin? How can it be that a human dies for sin? Proscribed by God. How can it be that a human dies for sin and yet sits with the mighty and distributes the spoils of war with the mighty? Isaiah 53. How can this be? And for them, the answer at the end of the book is somebody, but who? For us, the answer is the gray squirrel. <laughs> Let's go. The gray squirrel. <laughs> Let's close, let's close with prayer. Father, thank you that you understand all of our conundrums. You understand all of the mysteries. You understand. There are no mysteries to you. There are none. You, you understand all of our enigmas. You understand all of our puzzlement. You also understand why we experience so much puzzlement in all of these things. Um, we have more information than Isaiah's generation did. But there are still puzzles that remain for us. We don't know. We don't understand. You know our weakness. And you condescend to it, Father. You understand how weak we are. And you actually, I'm, I'm led by your word to think that you actually take delight even in that. How, much, how delightful must it be to your heart that we who struggle to understand nonetheless go on trusting you. So, Father, grant us that we may go on trusting you. And when we, when we really think our resources are sufficient, um, remind us that we still must trust and our resources really are not. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. <laughs>